Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. If I'm in the forest and this lion is just about to jump onto me, am I really worried that there may be a snake in the bush that I'm going to jump into to get out of its way? You know, cancer is that lion, COVID being the snake in the bush. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. Joseph McHale, Professor of Applied Cancer Research at the TGen Institute for City of Hope, and he's also the Chief Medical Officer of the International Myeloma Foundation, which I can attest is an incredible nonprofit group that I've been proud to call a partner for many, many years. Check him out, International Myeloma Foundation. Joe is one of the most highly coveted and requested subject matter experts of his kind and speaks at hundreds of conferences around the world when those used to exist. I'm sure that's lots of webinars these days, but I'll tell you, Joe is James Bond meets Liam Neeson meets Jason Bourne with a little Austin Powers thrown in. Of all the things I just said, his key focus, which fascinates me, is understanding how factors like what country that you're born in, your socioeconomic status, and your genetic predispositions determine whether or not you're going to enter the shit happen store of cancer. He's also Canadian, but I forgive him, although he does know Justin Trudeau, so I heard. Enjoy the show. Joe McHale, thank you so much for finally coming on any one of my broadcasts from the Stupid Cancer Show, which you weren't on, but I wanted you on, and now Out of Patience, which you are on. So, man, it's good to have you here because I have one really important, specific question to ask you first. Okay, bring it. You have more acronyms after your credentials than I've ever understood before. So, MD, I understand. M, capital E, lowercase d. What does that stand for? Well, first of all, I have more degrees in the thermometer, but I like to say that I am basically just Joe uh, here to give the talk or to do the interview. But oh. the MED stands for Masters in Education. And FRCPC? Uh, so that goes back to my Canadian roots that I know you're so jealous of. And so that's that means that I'm a specialist in Canada, which is called a Fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Canada. Do you have to like ride caribou to get certified? <laughs> Yes, you you have to be able to speak beaver uh, and eat maple <laughs> syrup at any moment. I'm glad they at least have minor, minimal standards in our neighbor to the north. Wow, what was it like growing up in Canada when you're not in this United States? Let's just start with like 
all the stigma over healthcare. What was it like growing up in Canada with their health system? Well, you know, a lot of people don't fully understand the Canadian healthcare system who are not in it. I mean, there are a lot of positives to it. I guess I should be careful too, because I grew up skiing with Justin Trudeau on a regular basis. So got to be careful what I say about my Canadian homies. Name drop of the decade here on Out of Patience. Indeed. I mean, the Canadian healthcare system in many ways had great strengths to it that really was all inclusive that you know critical things were covered part of the challenge of course was that often there was a lot of waiting for things and even in my practice as a cancer physician there it was very frustrating to have to wait very often to be able to get therapies when other countries had them before us or even an individual patient trying to get x-rays a lot of advances have been made and so there are a lot of amazing things about the Canadian healthcare system so I want to be careful what I say but um, it, it is a challenge. There's no perfect system we've learned across uh, the world. And in fact, I was involved with Health Policy Canada and used to advise the government to trying to find ways to better health care. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a huge problem wherever we are. But I'm very blessed to have had good health and very blessed to be a contributor to the healthcare system. Yeah, I want to get back to that because you have been to and spoken at numerous international events, your your focus on third world concerns and health. I want to get back to that because it's such a difficult package to really unwrap as how different every country manages health at any scale of their economic viabilities or their third world, second world. That is something that fascinates me. But I want to get back to that in a second because you have been specializing in myeloma for as long as I can remember me even meeting you. And why myeloma? What makes that so unique? And, and the, it's international. Yeah, indeed. So I, when I went to medical school, I was blessed. I, I grew up in a family of doctors. I used to joke and say, because both my parents and my brother were physicians, I'd just be a lawyer, protect the three of them. But I ultimately gave in and, and went to med school. And when I was in med school and, and early, even in my residency, I, I really wanted to care for the sickest of patients. You know, it was just my passion and my desire and at the time, multiple myeloma, I mean, not that it isn't an awful disease now, it truly is. It's still an incurable cancer. But at the time, it was particularly awful where the average survival was maybe one to two years. People inevitably had horrible back pain from fractures. Uh, they often had failure of their kidneys. It, it was really this multi-system disease. And I thought if, if I want to care for people, not just a disease, then this would be one to specialize in. So I had the privilege of focusing my work and efforts and have now for over 20 years just in multiple myeloma. And then a couple of years ago, when I had the privilege of joining the International Myeloma Foundation, I was able to take that joy and, and pleasure of caring for myeloma patients to uh, not just, uh, as I joked, used to joke and say, just rich people here in Snotsdale, uh, Arizona, <laughs> but indeed across the world. And it's so gratifying to help myeloma doctors, myeloma patients, all those in the healthcare team in multiple countries in Latin America and Asia and Africa as I had. My first introduction to myeloma was just about the time I was getting into starting Stupid Cancer. And, you know, I, it is largely a disease of not young adults, but one of the first cancer survivors I'd met in New York City at one of our very first meetups. Her name was Dina Fivelson, and she had myeloma. And her coping mechanism was she got a dog, and she named the dog Loma, as in myeloma. And <laughs> I was like, all right, Huber's going to work with our generation, and let's make sure that we lean into that as much as possible. But then I found but out it's so rare in younger audiences. Have you seen any divergence in diagnosis from an age perspective over the years? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, that's been one of my interests over the years is trying to understand myeloma in the very young. I mean, when we look at the age distribution of myeloma, generally speaking, we see that maybe two or 3% of people are under the age of 40 to begin with. So it's a really small number. But I've had a number of patients in my practice in their 20s and 30s. And then more recently, we've had two cases diagnosed in the world. In fact, I flew down to Uruguay to meet one of the youngest, if not the youngest person ever diagnosed at the age of eight uh, with with multiple myeloma. And we have seen, just as you said, a bit of a change that, that we've had better diagnostic techniques, better screening mechanisms to look for the disease, which often initially just presents with an abnormal protein in someone's blood, that we actually are seeing younger patients with it. When I spend time now in the Middle East, for example, I met with a group of doctors in Egypt and they were sharing with me that more like 20 to 25% of their patients are under the age of 40. Uh, so we're trying to understand that mechanism. That's one of the, the challenges, but also blessings of working internationally is you see how things are so different in different places. And you can try to connect the dots in a way that just being in one place might never allow you to do. And, and we really hope to tackle this issue much more aggressively uh, because every day people are still dying of this awful disease. Yeah, and, and again, there's another thing that fascinates me, trends in diagnostics and age and disease based on culture and lifestyle and dietary habits and environmentalism based on your proverbial zip code where you are in the world. It's fascinating that you're seeing those trends. How are those calculated? Do those go into some some population science algorithm to determine risk in different countries? Uh, that's a great question. And, and you know, it really is myeloma in many respects is a perfect example of a condition where we need to understand this better because it's not just a, an environmental or a genetic or a dietary phenomenon. It's likely all of those. So for example, we know that multiple myeloma has twice the incidence in the African-American population. So we've just launched through the IMF uh, a major initiative here in the U.S. to our African-American uh, patients in particular, because even though the disease is twice as common in that population, it's not as well known. And sadly, even though we've seen huge advances in survival in the last decade in myeloma, I mean, it's one of the few cancers I can tell you that we have doubled, if not tripled, the average survival of patients in the last 10 to 12 years. But unfortunately, we've not seen that same amount of survival advantage in the African-American population. And much of it has to do with, with access to therapies and the treatments that people are able to receive. But as we go around the world, like I mentioned the example of Egypt, and we do want to collect this in a way that it isn't a perfect algorithm as you've described. But to give you one example, we have screened literally the whole country of Iceland because Iceland is one of the few countries in the world where the majority of patients are not the only country in the world where the majority of patients have or people living there have had their genome sequenced. Uh, this is where I geek out on all the genetic stuff. but And so we can know what their, if you will, inherent genetics are. Then we screen the whole population for not just myeloma, but there's this thing called MGUS or MGUS, which is a pre-myeloma condition that ironically, even though myeloma is rare, MGUS is incredibly common. Like 5% of the adult population has this. If we look for this little abnormal protein in their blood, it's there. It may never mean anything. Only a tiny fraction of MGUS patients develop myeloma, but MGUS is really common. So we started screening the country of Iceland, and we started at the age 40, 
But as we started to get the numbers in, we realized, boy, we should have gone younger. So we've now gone back to the 19 to 40 age group as well to see, is this something that's developed earlier? And we really hope that we can discover genetic drivers of the disease and see if potentially dietary or environmental and behavioral aspects influence it. Now, obviously, Iceland doesn't represent the whole world, but you have to start somewhere. And now we're starting to reproduce this Iceland principle or concept of screening discrete populations in different countries around the world. We're doing it now in Latin America. We're about to launch an initiative to do it here in the U.S. among African-American patients. So hopefully all these bits of information can be brought together in a way to help us understand the disease better, ideally to catch it earlier, if not even cure it. Yeah, I mean, the jargon going around the industry is social determinants of health. And Indeed. that just means the crap you're stuck with and the crap that happens to you that you either have no control over or it can't control. It's chaos theory in terms of what you're predisposed to based on nurture nature. But just the idea of being born black, being born Jewish, being born this and this and this automatically genetically makes you this, this, and this. Is that a decent starting point for a lot of this? Indeed. Uh, you know, as I've mentioned, we see this uh, more commonly in the African-American population. I, I speak as someone who has African-American origin. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, my parents are originally from Egypt, which is indeed uh, one of the few countries in the world that's part of two, two continents. So uh, some may define it as African-American, others uh, consider it part of Asia's uh, within the Middle East. Uh, and, and you're right, what you're born with in your inherent genetics significantly influences things like your risk for disease, the way you're going to metabolize different drugs, the, your susceptibility to certain kinds of infections. And now, of course, we know that having the human genome mapped has really helped us, but has also allowed us to see that this is so much more complicated than we ever thought. It's not like there's one gene that uh, mitigates your risk of this cancer and one gene that mitigates the risk of that infection. It, it's not that simple. And so that's why this sort of big data concept is going to be needed for us to understand this more. I, I try to look at it, as you said, to look at what can I modify and what can I not modify? I obviously can't modify my inherent genetics yet. <laughs> Maybe right. someday we'll be able to do that more, but I can modify my behavior. We know that for example, myeloma is one of the diseases that is uh, connected to obesity. And, and so dietary issues can be influenced by that. And I'll, although we know that obesity is not just a dietary phenomenon, there is a genetic phenomenon to that as well. So it is pretty complicated. But as we start to piece this together, hopefully we can overcome what we can change and ultimately modify what we initially thought we couldn't change. You said, you know, risk reduction or I have issues with the word prevention. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Because it's been this ongoing debate, especially in pediatrics and young adult cancers. Like, you know, there's really nothing you do to prevent a blood cancer. But now you're saying that there is a determinant of obesity for myeloma. Yeah. So in general, you're right. Most of the cancers we work with in the hematology field, and in particular myeloma, we really don't have a known, if you will, cause or trigger. There's a really small sector of our patients, but an important sector of patients where we do know that that does occur. We've been able to connect uh, Agent Orange with myeloma uh, through the IMF. I remember we testified at the 9-11 Commission to note that there was an increase in myeloma cases, much more than expected in the first responders. We have seen this in individuals who are firefighters. But in the big picture, that's a tiny fraction of the bigger piece. I mean, I see myeloma patients every day. 
and I see patients that uh, live the pristine, healthy triathlete life uh, and others whose lifestyle is very different. So I do think like yourself, this notion of prevention is, is, a, is a complicated topic and can sometimes be very misunderstood because for the majority of our patients, you know, what I sometimes say to a patient is you can be the perfect driver and unfortunately still get an accident because of something that happens on the highway that is entirely not your fault. And I never like to attribute fault, as it were, to the cancers that we care for. That just adds a layer of guilt and uh, an unfortunate thinking that really does not help the patient nor the provider. And we want to provide the best to our patients in every way. Yeah, that that's also an ongoing narrative is, you know, vegan, perfect health, marathoner, never in the hospital any time in their lives and 33, bam, stage four breast cancer and good luck. And are we seeing more of that? Are we seeing less of that? I mean, again, this is such a, a rabbit hole of theory and uh, ideation and philosophy and anthropology, lots of fancy words I just dropped there on mm-hmm. are the healthy getting sick more by accident? Are the sick getting more sick? Is myeloma increasing uh, based on population or based on other circumstances in terms of diagnostics every year? Mm-hmm. When we see the increasing number of patients with myeloma, we really attribute it to two things right now because those seem to be at least the major levers of influence on more cases diagnosed. Number one, just the sheer aging of the population. Myeloma is a disease, as I mentioned, that is is typically seen in older individuals. The average age of diagnosis is somewhere between 65 and 68, a little bit younger in African-Americans, a little bit younger in Hispanic-Americans, but generally in that mid to late 60s time frame. And as the population is aging, we're seeing obviously more people in that age category. The second reason, uh, which is maybe somewhat similar to what we saw you know, 15 years ago when there seemed to be a significant spike in breast cancer uh, and people wondered if it was connected to smoking years before, it actually was connected to better better mammograms and better detection. We think that in myeloma, because people are being diagnosed more accurately and more consistently, that we're collecting more cases than previously may not have been fully understood. And that's, I never want to say it's good to have more cases, but it's good because we do know that when we can detect things a little bit earlier, we have a better chance to control the disease. Myeloma is one of those diseases that as it evolves, it becomes extremely aggressive. And so being able to catch it a little bit earlier, we've even redefined the way we categorize and define myeloma to ensure that we can capture people in the earliest of stages so that we can treat them with a better outcome. Back with our guest after the break. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Picking up on that last line of thought around increased incidents, I'm currently putting together more of like a historic narrative on where we've been in the last 25 years in cancer survivorship. And I really remember toward the late 2000s, very early on in the whatever they call this decade, the 2010s, that we were really starting to see a massive jump in incidents and the number of people diagnosed every year like leapfrogged up. But there was some kind of tipping point in terms of early detection, which gave off this impression that Chernobyl was upon us again and we're all dying instantly. But early detection in older populations is a really big deal, especially in colon cancer. Now they have lung cancer tests, obviously breast cancer, skin cancer care. Has there been any sense of when you're diagnosed with something that is so complicated and so easily misdiagnosed that there are better sort of spidey senses in the best practice world that this could be picked up earlier? I, I like the way you've said spidey senses. I haven't heard it exactly described by that, but you know, like that. But much of my work is trying to teach people to have spidey senses for myeloma because common things being common, people think of the common issues and maybe not the less common issues. This is part of, for example, our work in the African-American community, especially because the condition is more common in that community. But the presenting, if you will, symptom or sign could be a low blood count, could be some numbness and tingling in their hands, could be some protein in their urine. And when someone hears any of those three, they think, oh, that's almost definitely diabetes, for example. And so they don't think about myeloma. So I think you know, you don't want, I don't want people to be myeloma neurotic and that every time uh, any patient walks in the door, they think myeloma because it still is a relatively uncommon condition. But helping people, and now that medicine is practiced differently than when I went to med school, where now we're using more tools to collect big data, we have ways of incorporating multiple signs and symptoms into an algorithm that can help us with a better differential diagnosis. I do think it is going to be very important because uh, myeloma and some of its related conditions are classic for later diagnosis. And unfortunately, later diagnosis almost inevitably means more complications for the patient, more difficulty with therapy and shortened survival. So I want to pivot a little bit because you are the most interesting man in the world, given 3,000 speeches a week and whatnot. Let's talk about TGen because that's kind of like in your spare time, you also do this other thing. Yes. Yeah, so I'm really blessed. I, I kind of have uh, three jobs. Uh, you know, I, I'm the privilege of being the chief medical officer of the International Myeloma Foundation. I direct the myeloma research and have a clinic at the Honor Health Research Institute uh, but my primary academic appointment is through TGen or the Translational Genomics Research Institute uh, here in Phoenix. And it, it's such a privilege to work there because, as I was indicating earlier, I mean, so much of life is 
influenced, not necessarily dictated, but heavily influenced by our inherent genes. As I mentioned, our even as we come to understand it, some of our preferences, some of our dietary uh, desires, uh, right through to our susceptibility to cancers and other malignancies. So to be at an institute that is working so hard to understand that, to explain why that poor young individual who has a condition that has never been defined and can't be understood, that maybe we can help solve that for them. And the, the leadership there through Jeff Trent, you know, who had previously been at the IH, was at NIH was a huge part of the Human Genome Project. You know, I'm, I'm clearly surrounded by people much smarter than myself. And so I learn from them every day and have the privilege of trying to disseminate some of that information has really been exciting because it's an example of what I love to do, which is collaborating between multiple groups and multiple centers together. If you could layperson or schoolhouse rock, like what are the top two or three super cool advances in that field over the last five years for us to understand? Let's be positive. Yeah. So there's several of them, but I mean, the first one that I think in my world of oncology, I just gave a, a lecture on this exact topic to to the Arizona State University uh, crew that we're trying to learn about more about genetics and how it influences medical practice. You know, understanding in the oncology world that so many of the tumors that we have are so influenced by their own genes. So not necessarily the genes that someone has, if you will, throughout all of their body, but the, the tumor site has had mutated genes and the cells have gone off the rails. Understanding those genes has allowed us now to bring all sorts of very precise treatments to the clinic. You know, I used to say old school treatment was like saying the enemy has invaded the building across the street. So we need to get rid of the enemy. So we're going to blow up the whole building, right? You know, very, very American. We're going to find them. We're going to snuff them out. We're going to get them, you know, and there's so much collateral damage. It may indeed hit the enemy, but oh, there's so much collateral damage. But if I knew, for example, that the enemy was only on the third floor in the back room, then I could target that specific area. And, and so I think the dawn of targeted therapy where we're very precise and specific has really revolutionized cancer care. So someone with that lung cancer, we identify the exact mutation they have and a drug has been developed to overcome that mutation or overcome what happens because of that mutation. And so the patient doesn't have to go through the bald and barf, you know, uh, classic chemotherapy treatment so that they can have their cancer controlled. The second major advance that I get all hot and bothered and excited about is all this work in so-called immunotherapy, which is where we can actually use someone's own immune system because we understand the complexity of it and the, and the genetics of it, frankly, that we can turn that immune system on the patient. So using my same analogy, if option number one, old school was blowing up the building, option number two now targeted therapy is to say, okay, I'm going to just knock out that little room on the back of the third floor. The third option is to say, you know what? I can actually use that building itself against the enemy that's inside it. I can shut off the power to the building. I can turn off the water to the building. I can hack in to the Wi-Fi and not let the enemy communicate with its partners. I mean, I can play country music at the building and irritate it to death. There's there's lots of different things that I can do that now literally is taking the very environment in which the 
cancer is living and turn it on itself. And that's literally what we're doing. We do these things like CAR T-cell therapy. I mean, this is like Star Trekian, man. We go in there, we take T-cells out of a patient, which are part of your, if you will, soldier cells that you have in your body. And we train your soldiers to know your tumor. We multiply your soldiers in the lab and then we give them back to you. Like I'll take a hundred and I'll give you back a million. I mean, it's just remarkable how we can do that. And then it allows us to be able to target the cancer in a way that people are going to accept, of course, their own immune system. So those two advances, the concept of targeted therapy and immunotherapy have really been, if you will, the two blockbusters of this last decade. So let's talk about COVID and how it has impacted the patient advocate and research universe, because honestly, it has. And not every nonprofit has been around as long as IMF and has the infrastructure of IMF, but it still does really hit the fundamental like desire, necessity for advocacy to be even more accelerated, especially when the world just starts burning like this. Mm-hmm. What steps can you let us know that IMF has taken to build whatever level of like realistic reassurance and beyond wearing a mask and behaving. And obviously other countries are doing this much better than the United States right now. What's your role? What's your take? What is IMF's message? That's a great question. Uh, And I really appreciate it because I've been so incredibly proud of how the IMF has handled the situation uh, in the midst of this adversity. And a lot of it has been leveraged because of our love of science and our love of people, the connectedness that the IMF has. I mean, we have, for example, over 150 support groups across the country. I just was on a call a few minutes ago with our vice president of support groups, and she was explaining to us that we moved so quickly when COVID occurred to make sure that our support groups continued in any virtual way possible. And she said to me, you know, if if it weren't for the way that we approach that, it's quite likely that a lot of these support groups could have fizzled out because people feel feel so isolated during this COVID crisis. And so be able, to be able to have that connectedness, even as, as our staff, as we meet every week virtually and see each other's faces and bring the reality to what we're doing face to face, I think has had a pro- prolific impact. We've also provided so much education. I mean, our attendance at our virtual webinars has gone from hundreds now to thousands as we try to explain to people what are their risks during COVID, you know, how important it is to wear a mask, how important it is to socially distance, or as our as our chairman of the board, Brian Dury, likes to say, I don't like to call it social distancing. He says, I want it to be physical distancing and social connectedness. Uh, and that connectedness is, I think, what has allowed us uh, to continue. And then lastly, you know, our connection with the myeloma physicians and, and treaters, as well as the pharmaceutical industries, has really helped us through this as we've uh, helped guide how we care for patients, as we've been able to keep people connected and have them a discussion. I, I had the privilege of hosting a whole online series uh, where I interviewed hematologists and emergency room doctors and ID specialists from New York and San Francisco and Chicago and, and Seattle to discuss what this really means for our patients and what modifications should we make for our treatment and should people come in? Do we do a virtual visit or do we do a face-to-face visit? Do we give IV chemo or do we go to oral chemo? 
And, and I think that level of connectedness has allowed us to continue to do our work, even though we haven't been able to do it face to face. I mean, with the unlimited number of Karen videos happening around the world, <laughs> I feel very confident. I'm in New York where everyone's wearing a mask because we're in New York City and whatever. But are you feeling like there is a significantly higher degree of compliance in the vulnerable cancer universe about mask wearing and trying to educate the rest of the folks out there that may not understand the vulnerability issue that people wear masks to protect other people? Absolutely. I completely agree with that statement. In fact, when we've looked at, and in my role, it's been a privilege, been able to look at the, the kinds of numbers that we've seen of COVID cases around the world, uh, at least within the myeloma community, in many places, we've seen significantly less than we would have expected, considering that this is a disease of older patients and, and they're more susceptible. And one of those reasons why uh, is that we train our patients very carefully, especially any of our patients that have ever been through high-dose chemotherapy or stem cell transplant. We've already taught them when to wear a mask, how to vigorously wash their hands, how to socially distance. And I believe that that population has been uh, safer, if you will, than they would have been because they have been more compliant. I mean, it's so straightforward to wear a mask. It just shocks me that there are so many so r resistant to doing this uh, and selfish, frankly, because it's not really just about you. It's about all of us. And when I see my patients every week and I know that they're vulnerable, it, it drives me even more to ensure that I advocate in any way that we protect the vulnerable in our society. Yeah, it is very telling. I've been mentioning this on my show almost ad nauseum that what this pandemic has done is released an ebb tide to the world that has really exposed all the crap lingering on the beach we would never normally see if the tide was in. And hmm. that hmm. is very telling. But I, I am consistently inspired by the fact that your point, the vulnerable communities typically already know they're vulnerable. So we are more heightened to the sensitivities of noncompliance in consideration of being a decent human being on the planet. But I'm glad to hear, and you wrote the guidelines, you wrote the COVID guidelines for IMF. What, what did it take to construe any perceived true, false, vectored disinformation information into something trustworthy and coherent? Well, well we, we try to bring together experts to give advice, and, and so many guidelines have been written through the American Society of Hematology and the American Society of Clinical Oncology, our International Myeloma Society, so many different groups that I've had the privilege of being a part of. And for us, you know, it is protecting the patient, as we've said. But, you know, the other side to this that I think is important to note as well, uh, especially as, as cancer patients may be listening in, that it's so critical that their cancer also be managed, that we, we don't want to swing the pendulum so far. Like, for example, part of our guidelines were, you know, considering virtual visits when a face-to-face -face visit was not necessary. But that doesn't mean that everybody who had, you know, chemo appointments would just immediately cancel their appointments and not get their chemo anymore. I mean, one analogy I use sometime, I want to be careful how I use it, but I, I would say that if I'm in the forest or in the jungle and this lion is just about to jump onto me, am I really worried that there may be a snake in the bush that I'm going to jump into to get out of its way? You know, cancer is that lion, and we want to make sure that when someone is actively sick with an awful cancer, 
that we don't minimize their opportunity to be treated because of a potential risk of COVID being the snake in the bush. And so part of the whole idea of what we did as a society to so-called flatten the curve was to allow those who really needed treatment, be it for COVID or other critical conditions like cancer, could have the resources supplied to them, uh, whereas other things that were less urgent or less important could be set aside for a period of time. So we also didn't want our myeloma patients to become complete hermits in their homes and never uh, communicate with their physicians and give up on their treatment either. Yeah, I, I want to have you back to talk about the sort of the telehealth revolution that was forced upon the cancer community. But I do want to thank you for coming on the show. And and by the way, you make the coolest like Dr. Schoolhouse Rock metaphors. I love the <laughs> the building and then the room and then, you know, you play country music and it, it's good. You you speak human and it's rare and it's very, very appreciated. So Dr. Joseph McHale, professor at TGen City of Hope and the chief medical officer of the International Myeloma Foundation. And I hear he does a mean Sean Connery impression. Thank you so much for coming out of patience. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. It's a privilege to be with you and I look forward to the next time. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. 